The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. Hello, welcome to Americano. My name is Amber Athey. I'm the Washington editor for The Spectator World, sitting in for Freddie this week, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Daniel McCarthy. He is the editor of Modern Age Journal, as well as a columnist at The Spectator, and he's here to help us break down this long protracted speaker battle among the House GOP members after about three weeks. They finally selected a new speaker to replace Kevin McCarthy. His name is Mike Johnson. And Daniel, I'd love it if you could start by just giving the listeners an idea of who this guy is. Well, he's more conservative than Kevin McCarthy, which makes uh, this... Well, that's it not hard to but do. It is, but it does make this protracted uh, you know, process of finding a new speaker something of a success for the insurgents and for Matt Gates in particular in deposing Kevin McCarthy. So, um, you know, Speaker Johnson... Um, you know, comes from uh, not necessarily the Freedom Caucus. He wasn't a member of that. And he doesn't, uh, you know, isn't really on the cutting edge necessarily of the populist wing of the Republican Party. But he's a lot closer to that wing than he than, you know, Kevin McCarthy was. And uh, he's really a substantial step in the direction of, uh, you know, the more populist or Trumpian version of the Republican Party. So really, I think what you've seen is a generational change here where Kevin McCarthy represented a kind of old guard from the Paul Ryan era. And uh, Mike Johnson really is, you know, he is accurate as a representation of where the conservative grassroots are right now in the GOP. And I think, uh, you know, they're going to be very happy with um, at least the initial phase of Johnson's speakership. He is also the first socially conservative speaker in quite a while. And in his opening remarks, or his first remarks, rather, after taking the gavel, he talked about scripture. He talked about uh, quoting G.K. Chesterton. He spoke about his faith and, and how it guides both himself and the founding of America. And that was something that we haven't really heard unapologetically from a leadership position in the Republican Party for quite some time. Do you think that this social conservatism is an asset for him or a detriment? Because in the speakership, obviously, Republicans and the American people want to see someone who represents their interest and their ideology, but there's also a pragmatism that has to come as well. So I wonder if his coming out so fiery might be difficult um, for him to find common ground with perhaps Democrats or even more moderate members of the party who have kind of abandoned social conservatism. Well, you know, it's been very interesting. We saw uh, when he was selected and uh, just the past day or two that um, a number of conservative journalists at uh, some very old, uh, you know, established conservative uh, publications seemed to be taken aback that Mike Johnson was a critic of gay marriage. Uh, they also were, you know, sort of taking shots at him because Johnson is someone who believes that maybe you can shut down the government if you're getting a bad deal from the Democrats and a bad deal from the Dem from the Biden administration. So Mike Johnson, uh, you know, he is uh, quite conservative. He is willing to, you know, be somewhat combative on these issues. 
But again, that's what Republican voters elected a Republican Congress to do. And I think, you know, for a while now, the Republican leadership in Congress has thought they could get away with being elected for one purpose. And then once they're in office, behaving as if they're going to be um, just a half step behind the Democratic Party in terms of social progressivism and even in terms of growth of government and, uh, you know, sort of uh, economic progressivism or leftism. And Johnson actually is, uh, once again, I think, a, you know, a turn back towards the direction conservatives actually elect Republicans to take. He is both socially and economically more conservative. He's also quite skeptical of the idea of giving Ukraine a blank check. And that's going to be uh, one of the initial uh, hurdles that his speakership is going to confront because Ukraine and uh, the situation in Palestine and Israel are going to be major tests of his speakership right from the, the get-go. But um, you know he's he's pragmatic. He's not someone who again is considered to be you know identical to Matt Gates or ex- exactly you know on the the Trumpian uh, you know sort of cutting edge. But he's uh, closer to that side. And again, I think that's where the center of gravity for the Republican Party is today than he is to this kind of old guard. Which really, I mean, someone like Kevin McCarthy is about ten years beyond the point where he could have been you know the ideological centerpiece for the Republican Party and could have made a plausible speaker. What do you think ultimately separated Mike Johnson from previous candidates like Jim Jordan um, and even Tom Emmer? I mean, Tom Emmer is kind of a different case because he, of course, failed to get the Trump endorsement, which sort of sank his candidacy before it even began. But Jim Jordan went through several rounds of voting, was ultimately not successful. What do you think made Mike Johnson more palatable to the caucus than Jim Jordan? Well, you know, it was such a narrow margin of control for the Republicans in the House of Representatives personality factors as well as ideological factors can be absolutely fatal. And I think with Jim Jordan, we certainly heard from a lot of backbenchers, a lot of members of Congress who said they felt as if, first of all, Jordan was a bit arrogant, was kind of taking it for granted. I think they felt as if many of Jordan's supporters were being a bit of, uh, you know, doing a bit of bullying of members of Congress trying to get Jordan uh, the speakership. And also there were people who were angry about uh, Kevin McCarthy's downfall and who blamed uh, Jim Jordan for kind of engineering that, or at least they thought that he engineered it. So uh, Mike Johnson, the fact that he has a lower profile than Jim Jordan, I think that helped him a heck of a lot. You also saw some people criticizing that low profile, suggesting that perhaps he doesn't have the experience necessary to be speaker. Do you think those criticisms are valid? Well, we've had, you know, people who've been groomed for the speakership for a long time. So both Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy were part of this group of so-called young guns that were highlighted about a decade ago by the Republican establishment of that era. And, uh, you know, these people had been groomed for the job. They had experience. And uh, they both, you know, had wound up having disastrous uh, speakerships. So I think the idea of trying new blood right now is uh, the right approach. Now, maybe Mike Johnson's speakership isn't going to work out either. It's going to be very difficult, of course, with such a slim margin of control in the House. But uh, the Republicans really needed to get out of the rut they were in with people like Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy. And it was about time they tried something new. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's why his opening remarks were so refreshing to hear him sort of unapologetically stand up for social conservatism and for limited government and and individual liberty and all of these things that used to be championed by members of the right and have really been abandoned in recent years. But as you mentioned, he does have a slim majority. Anyone who goes into the speakership position is going to have a difficult time getting the caucus to agree on issues and possibly having to reach across the aisle and work with Democrats. So how does he avoid falling in to the same pitfall that McCarthy did, which was particularly in this spending battle, right? He is trying to 
include things like border security and spending cuts that would satisfy the Freedom Caucus and other more right-wing members of the GOP, but also has to recognize that those things might not pass in the Senate, which is uh, narrowly controlled by Democrats. So how do you think Mike Johnson should approach his attempts at unifying Republicans while also actually trying to perhaps get legislation passed? Well, um, one reason why I think the whole uh, media hysteria over uh, the speakership battle was overblown is that very little legislation is going to pass anyway with a Democratic president, a Republican House with a very slim majority and a very slim Democratic majority in the Senate. Really, this is all, you know, sort of rearranging the deck deck chairs on the Titanic, so to speak, because (laughs) nothing's going to pass. You know, the way the way the way the numbers are right now, it's just, you know, it's a complete stalemate. The challenge that I think Speaker Johnson is going to face is that um, he has already had to make certain concessions to the moderates in his party, especially the delegation from the state of New York, which is very keen to make sure that the state and local tax uh, you know, deduction on federal taxes is increased because the state of New York has very high taxes. New Yorkers feel as if they're getting double taxed by the state government and by the federal government. Although really, you know, my view of this as an economic conservative is that this is basically a subsidy for for New York State to keep mm-hmm. its taxes very high. So I don't like the fact that, that Johnson has had to make concessions on this uh, SALT deduction, as it's called. Uh, and in fact, you know, sort of getting rid of the SALT deduction, or at least, you know, greatly reining it in, was one of the major achievements of President Trump uh, with his tax reform bill. So, uh, you know, I do see this as a bit of Republican backsliding, but it's purely a result of the fact that Republicans have such a slim majority in the House that Speaker Johnson really has to cut deals that he really probably would not like to make, uh, that nonetheless are just absolutely necessary in order for him to maintain a, a basically the hot seat, um, you know, because he's going to have to, you know, sort of walk a tightrope in order to maintain his speakership. Uh, what happened to McCarthy could happen to Johnson for other reasons. You mentioned earlier as well that he might have more of an appetite for allowing the government to shut down if they're unable to reach a budgetary deal. He's expressed skepticism as well about funding for Ukraine, which President Biden is currently trying to bundle in with increased funding to Israel as they face these attacks from Hamas. As we look forward to uh, the new budget battle, which the deadline is, I believe, mid-November or perhaps early November, do you think it's more likely than not that Mike Johnson might proceed over a shutdown? Yes, uh, I've been expecting a shutdown, you know, almost from the beginning. One of the bullets that the Republicans had to dodge is that you're having uh, um, statewide, uh, you know, sort of legislative elections in the state of Virginia uh, next week. Um, so in, in early November, and uh, I guess, you know, week and a half or so from now uh, when we're recording. And um, if you had a government shutdown at the same time as you're having these legislative elections in Virginia, that would be very dangerous for, for Republicans because control of the Virginia legislature is up for grabs. And uh, Virginia, of course, is right adjacent to Washington, D.C., and so there are an awful lot of government jobs right here. And if you have a shutdown, it's going to be felt by, by Virginians immediately. And that could really you know, have a serious impact on the election. Now, the way that the continuing resolution that keeps the government open has been structured means that you're not going to have another shutdown showdown until after the Virginia elections. And I think that's going to give the Republicans a bit more um, uh, a bit more leverage and a bit more confidence going into the negotiations because they can, in fact, accept a shutdown at this point. And, uh, you know, they're still running some risks. People might hold it against them uh, next year in the uh, you know presidential and congressional elections. 
but uh, they won't have the burden of worrying about the Virginia um, legislative elections. And I think that's going to mean that Republicans, including Johnson, are going to be more willing to shut down the government. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that point because these Virginia elections are really seen as a bellwether for 2024 and also a huge opportunity for one of the most popular Republican governors in the nation, Governor Glenn Youngkin, as you know, especially being in a blue state, his achievements have been quite substantial to have the ability to continue to pass through his agenda. So you feel like the Republicans in the House are uh, cognizant of that fact? You think they're sensitive to the fact that the Virginia elections are coming up? They're very keenly aware of it, yes. And I think right now they think that they can kind of thread this needle. And even though there will be a threat of a government shutdown at the time of the elections, uh, there won't be a shutdown yet in, in effect. And so, um, you know, I think they are confident that they are able to, um, you know, not get damaged in the Virginia elections as a result of the idea of an impending shutdown, but one that hasn't taken place just yet. Of course, uh, you know, there are, I'm sure Governor Youngkin is, uh, you know, kind of sweating bullets here. And I think uh, there are others, you know, uh, in the Republican Party, including especially the moderates who are saying, you should not be taking this risk. You really need to make sure that uh, there's either an additional continuing resolution or a more, you know, sort of long range uh, solution to the, you know, risk of a shutdown before the Virginia elections, because um, even if voters are just thinking about it and not actually experiencing it, that's going to be a drag on Republican prospects, uh, you know, again, in about a week and a half. Pivoting a bit here, I I don't think there was greater evidence that Speaker Johnson is more conservative than his predecessor, than how quickly the media and the Democratic Party coalesced with each other to attack him. Um, The uh, House Judiciary Democrats put out this factually incorrect claim that he was a member of the supposedly far-right Freedom Caucus, Um, I think most Republicans wouldn't even describe the Freedom Caucus as far right, but nonetheless, he's not a member of it, so the point is moot. And then the media has been really hung up on his role in a 2020-related election lawsuit that came out of Texas. And just for listeners to understand what exactly the accusation is, the media is claiming that he was attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The Texas lawsuit... um, from my understanding, actually was calling for a delay of certifying votes from four swing states, including Pennsylvania, pending an investigation into whether or not invalid votes were counted. Um, For example, in Pennsylvania, they had changed some of the rules pretty close to the election, had a couple of court battles wherein uh, election officials were told to count ballots that either didn't have matching signatures or had arrived beyond election day and some other issues. So he had signed an amicus brief in that Texas lawsuit. Um, what do you make of the the quick attacks from the media and the Democrats against Johnson? I don't remember a similar fervor against former Speaker McCarthy. That's right. And uh, that really does speak volumes. And not only have, you know, the usual, you know, sort of liberal media, establishment media, left-leaning media attacked uh, Speaker Johnson, but uh, Bill Kristol, the, uh, you know, sort of Pangendrum of the neoconservatives, who previously had been uh, something of a mover and shaker in the Republican Party before Trump, uh, Bill Kristol also attacked Speaker Johnson uh, right from the moment that he got the gavel. So uh, that tells you that Johnson is, you know, despised by uh, the liberal establishment, despised by the American left, also despised by the neocons. Um, all of which is actually a ringing endorsement for Speaker Johnson as far as actual conservatives and the Republican Party base is concerned. 
regarding this, you know, attack on him uh, concerning the, the 2020 elections and whether he's an election denier or whatever, the proof that the attacks on him are invalid can be found in Colorado Congressman Ken Buck. So Ken Buck is a generally conservative congressman who is actually, you know, rather different from most of the rest of the Republicans on this issue. He is uh, very, you know, upset about claims that, uh, you know, Donald Trump won the 2020 election. And Ken Buck has even said nice things about Liz Cheney, who, of course, you know, is, is a, uh, you know, a major critic of former President Trump. Uh, but Ken Buck, nonetheless, Ken Buck would not support Jim Jordan for the speakership because he said Jim Jordan would not come out and say that Joe Biden won the 2020 election. But Ken Buck did, in fact, support Mike Johnson for the speakership. And that's because uh, Congressman Buck said that Johnson, uh, you know, he raised a number of legal issues in this amicus brief, and it went through the court process. And Ken Buck said that's the appropriate process for disputing, you know, uh, certain questions about an election. So um, someone like Ken Buck has, you know, I disagree with him on various issues, but I think he has on this quite a lot of integrity. And, uh, you know, he put his integrity at stake in supporting um, uh, Speaker Johnson. And so the, the attacks on Speaker Johnson are unjustified and are really just pure partisan and ideological BS. Yes, and I think it's important to point out as well that more than 125 House Republicans had signed onto that amicus brief in that Texas lawsuit, including former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, as well as uh, Steve Scalise and Gary Palmer, who I don't think anyone would accuse of being election deniers, but alas, um, those attacks have, have continued against Johnson nonetheless. I've also seen on the very, perhaps, online uh, wing of the Republican Party that some conservatives are actually already expressing skepticism and are quite angry at Speaker Johnson because of a resurfaced video in which he describes the death of George Floyd as murder and also suggests that white privilege is a real phenomenon. Um, I'm not sure how to defend him on the white privilege comments and what exactly he was going for there. I believe that he had adopted a black child that is now an adult, and perhaps that's where that came from. But do you have any more information or context surrounding his comments? And do you think that the people who are sharing that video around and suggesting it's proof that he's maybe not a real conservative um, are justified? Well, my comments are more about uh, his critics than it is about than they are about him. Um, you know, the very online right wants 100%, you know, sort of uh, right wing perspectives from everyone 100% of the time. And uh, they, you know, in, if you're an actually a general, if you're actually a commander in any kind of political battle, as the speaker certainly has to be, you have to pick and choose your battles. You don't go and try to fight every single battle with 100% of your forces, because then you're going to wind up being spread too thin and getting defeated. Um, now, Johnson, you know, um, he went along with the conventional wisdom of the George Floyd, uh, you know, killing in 2020. And a lot of the right are giving him pressure for that. And he needs to listen to that because he needs to be careful about how he messages going forward. And he needs to be careful not to preemptively concede either to liberal messaging or to the conventional wisdom. That said, uh, you know, the idea that you were going to have some sort of perfect, you know, uh, right-wing candidate for the speakership who could get all of the Republican you know, votes he needed to get in order to become Speaker, uh, that was never going to happen. And um, you know, I'm sure if you went through Jim Jordan's remarks or you know, Steve Scalise's or others, you'd be able to find something, if not George Floyd, then going back earlier, something that would tick off the right uh, pretty easily. Uh, you, you can't satisfy you know, the 100 percenters uh, to the degree they want to be satisfied. 
the question is, you know, whether anyone in the Republican caucus in Congress is so dissatisfied with Johnson over something like that, that they would uh, choose not to support him or try to, you know, call a, a vote of no confidence and get rid of him. And that's obviously not going to happen. So Johnson, I think, needs to listen to what people are saying, needs to be, you know, sensitive to the fact that um, conservatives are, you know, they are cautious. They want to, you know, kind of see results from him. And, uh, you know, they they have high standards and they are, you know, skeptical. Uh, but at the same time, you know, while you listen to them, you, you can't, you know, afford to give, uh, you know, to take everything they say as being, uh, you know, sort of handed down from on high. Because if you do that, uh, you know, you're just going to have absolutely no room to maneuver whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's helpful advice. And it's one of the reasons why, despite mostly agreeing with that uh, wing of the party, I found myself not as critical as Speaker McCarthy as some of them were because I felt like he was perhaps approaching the gavel with the pragmatism necessary to govern in a period of time where Republicans don't have that much power. Um, looking backwards, do you think that the attacks against McCarthy from the right and even the decision to vacate the speakership were done in good faith? Do you think that their criticisms of McCarthy were valid to the point of, of justifying getting rid of him? Or do you think they should have held on a little bit longer? No, I think they were totally justified. And, you know, um, on the one hand, there were people who made it clear from the beginning that they had grave philosophical, you know, ideological reservations about Speaker McCarthy. Uh, Kevin McCarthy made certain guarantees that people who were skeptical of him from the beginning felt that he had, you know, betrayed, that he had gone back on his word. And then also you saw that there were a handful of congressmen who, even though they weren't necessarily ideologically, uh, you know, at a point where they could not accept Kevin McCarthy, nonetheless felt that the way Kevin McCarthy had conducted himself as speaker, the way that he had, you know, sort of led his personal relationships with uh, members of his caucus, um, you know, uh, languish, um, that that alienated them from the speaker. So the speaker has to be attentive both to philosophical, you know, points and also to the personal sort of morale and, you know, collegiality of, uh, you know, his caucus. And, um, and McCarthy, I think, had failed on both points. Yes, I think that's right. He ended up having quite a caustic relationship with the people who ultimately secured his ability to become speaker in the first place. And also in the, the final weeks or days seemed to be sort of quietly making deals with Democrats without the support of his own caucus. And I think that ultimately led to his downfall. Now, if Speaker Johnson ends up blowing up spectacularly in the same way that McCarthy did, do you think Republicans still have the appetite, the gumption to go through this process again, where they vacate the speakership and, and nominate somebody new? Or are they kind of over it after this three weeks of chaos? Well, they're certainly not eager to repeat uh, what they've just gone through. Uh, but that said, I think there are, you know, enough members of Congress, enough Republicans uh, in a, you know, where you have single digit numbers, basically, that are responsible for keeping uh, any speaker, in this case, Johnson, uh, in his role. Uh, there are enough Republicans, you know, who would, um, you know, not be willing to accept, uh, you know, giving the candy store away to Joe Biden or to the, the Democrats in the Senate that, um, you know, you could certainly have a... Um, a problem for Johnson if he, you know, drifts in the McCarthy direction. So, um, no, I think I think this could happen again. I think it's unlikely. I think everyone wants to avoid having it happen again. But uh, there is a certain threshold, and if uh, McCarthy, and if sorry, uh, Speaker Johnson crosses that threshold, 
in terms of concessions he makes to Biden and to the Senate Democrats, then, um, you know, even if people are reluctant to go through this process again, they will trigger it again, simply because, um, again, voters have put Republicans in charge of the House, not in order to be just like Democrats, but in order to give a real choice, a real difference of vision and policy. What are some things that Johnson could accomplish that would make you say he was a good speaker? Well, one of the first things he has to do, and you see that uh, Senator Mike Lee is championing this in the uh, Senate, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if Johnson follows through with, in the House, is to separate uh, you know, the aid bills for Ukraine and for Israel. Um, so we have a number of foreign policy crises in the world right now, uh, the biggest ones, of course, being Ukraine and Israel. And we have to take a serious look at the resources that we're sending to both of those countries. And there's, you know, we saw what happens, and we saw this in Afghanistan, when the United States just pours money infinitely for 20 years into a situation that is not improving. And um, we're going to have a repeat of that. And now, you know, sort of in multiple theaters, unless we're very careful about, you know, what this money is actually doing, who it's actually going to, what kinds of results are, are emerging from it. And um, sort of what our priorities are relative to our needs at home and the needs of a world that currently is in, you know, uh, the throes of multiple wars and terrorist insurgencies uh, as, you know, people basically have total contempt for Joe Biden as, as, you know, the president of the United States. And I think, you know, every every bad actor in the world right now is saying this is a good time to kind of get away with things because uh, Joe Biden just isn't a, you know, isn't a very imposing figure whatsoever. So that's going to be one of the obviously, you know, sort of top uh, challenges for uh, Speaker Johnson right now. There is in Washington, D.C., and this is true, you know, partly in the Republican caucus among the more establishment figures and, and so-called moderates. It's certainly true among the Democrats, and it's certainly true in the kind of think tank and, and magazine world in Washington, D.C. There are people who want to combine the Ukraine and Israel aid bills uh, simply in order to kind of ramrod the whole thing through Congress without, you know, sort of due diligent, uh, careful examination of what kind of money we're actually spending, where it's going, and what kind of, uh, you know, results we can expect from it. So um, this, I think, is, is a defining challenge for Speaker Johnson right from the beginning. Is he going to do the conservative thing and separate these bills so they can be scrutinized individually and with due care? Or instead, is this going to be simply another, you know, sort of pork-filled, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, throw in the kitchen sink and everything else kind of approach? There's also the question of whether he can now unify the caucus. I mean, him getting the votes suggests that more likely than not, he'll be able to accomplish that goal. But do you think there will be any lingering resentment from the people who ultimately bowed out of the speaker race or were unable to get the votes? I think probably not too much uh, because, you know, everyone got their shot during that prolonged three-week period to try to become speaker. And, uh, you know, even though they may be unhappy with the results, they realize that, you know, it's not as if someone stole it from them. There just wasn't, the numbers were not there. And if they don't give Johnson a chance, it's not as if they're going to have any chance for themselves in the future. And of course, um, you know, I think someone like Jim Jordan may envision coming back to the speakership at some point or trying to, you know, make another bid for it. But, um, you know, that's not going to happen while you have the current numbers uh, in the House. And, um, you know, even if you have a, a big Republican wave in 2024, um, you know, Johnson will have to think carefully, does he, you know, do you continue to have Mike Johnson as speaker or does Jordan try to then, you know, at that point, jump ahead of or jump over Speaker Johnson? That'll be interesting to see. But that's, you know, over a year in the future, I think. 
We will definitely keep our eyes on that, as well as some of these short-term battles regarding the Ukraine and Israel funding and the ability of the House GOP to try to get some kind of spending deal passed before an inevitable, almost inevitable government shutdown. All things to keep an eye on, and we'll be evaluating Speaker Johnson's uh, performance as that goes on. Daniel McCarthy, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Americano. Thank you, Amber. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.